Hey everyone, welcome to another exciting episode with Arthi and me. And today we have a treat. Uh, somebody uh, who both me and Arthi, especially Arthi, has been a fan of for a very, very long time. And somebody I'm sure who is ridiculously handsome, good looks you have seen often over the uh, yeah, internet. Uh, we have best-selling author, uh, podcast host with over 700 million downloads, the one, the only, Rich Roll. Rich, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so delighted to spend an hour with you guys. I, I, I love what you guys are doing. I love the energy and uh, it's just a, it's, it's a treat to talk to you guys today. No, I mean, the pleasure is all ours and thank you. Um, and one of the things that, you know, we were chatting about offline was I love how open you've been uh, about your story, uh, your journey, your struggles in multiple levels. And maybe for, you know, some of our viewers who may not be familiar with your backstory, could you just kind of tell us like how you came to be your, the origin story of Rich Roll, if you like. Oof. Okay. Well, in a nutshell, uh, how do I best describe this? Uh, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was sort of an awkward, insecure kid who struggled academically, struggled athletically, kind of found my calling in the swimming pool and pursued that for many years and in lockstep with my progression as a, as a competitive swimmer in, in my younger years. Um, that translated into the classroom, and I graduated from high school near the top of my class and got into all the fancy schools, ended up going to Stanford and competed on um, the Stanford swimming team, at the, which at the time in the late 1980s was the top NC2A program in the country, and then quickly proceeded to uh, squander all of those amazing opportunities uh, down a bottle and you know, had a you know, 12-year experience as a progressive alcoholic. That took me to some pretty dark and desperate uh, places, but ultimately got sober at 31 and for the first time um, kind of changed all of my priorities in life and learned a new new set of tools to how to you know guide me moving forward. But then spent the next 10 years <clears throat> as a corporate lawyer trying to repair my relationships and um, you know, kind of overcome the wreckage of my past and, and, you know, become that person of, of tremendous potential that I had once been. And during that period of time, uh, really, you know, despite being sober and making sobriety a priority, um, didn't do enough internal work to really wrestle with, you know, who my authentic, uh, self kind of lying dormant within was, well, I was just sort of jamming a square peg into a round hole and trying to do, do the right things that, 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 you know, society would approve of to, you know, be a successful, responsible person in the world and mm -hmm. had a bit of a, a, a second, uh, come to Jesus reckoning moment shortly before I turned 40 where it all kind of caught up with me. I had a health scare because I've been overlooking my health and well-being for many years and had transferred a lot of that alcoholic energy into unhealthy diet and lifestyle habits while I was pursuing this legal career, which was very much at odds with who I truly you know, wanted to be in the world. So I was having a sort of existential crisis, I guess you could call it. Mm -hmm. And that all kind of came to a head uh, shortly before I turned 40. And um, decided that I needed to change my priorities. And that began with my relationship with food. Ultimately, I ended up adopting a 100% plant-based diet and experienced a bit of a physical 
resurgence and, and uh, vitality as a result of that, which got me interested in moving my body once again, mm-hmm. um, really out of a search for the things that brought me joy as a young person, which are very primal, simple things like jumping into a swimming pool or, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, what it feels like to have that elevated heart rate, you know, and to kind of spend time with myself. And um, lost 50 pounds relatively quickly and realized that I had some latent potential as an athlete in the endurance space that had been kind of lying dormant. And I had, you know, I, I had failed to realize my potential as an athlete as a result of my alcoholism, you know, with my swimming career. And I guess on some level felt I had unfinished business and, you know, got really involved in the ultra endurance world and, and proceeded to distinguish myself in some, you know, really long, uh, kind of outrageous multi-day triathlon races and did a couple things that caught the notice of the media, uh, for a couple reasons. First of which being like, what is this middle-aged 40 something, you yeah. know, corporate attorney doing in these races and doing well. And, and secondarily, like he's not eating any animal products. Like how does yeah. that work? And, you know, there's plenty of plant-based athletes killing it right now, but back in 2008, 2009, yeah, that was there not weren't a that thing. many, and that was, yeah. yeah, yeah, it was not really a thing. Um, so that media attention led to the opportunity to write a book uh, called Finding Ultra that came out in 2012, which right. told that story. It's sort of an addiction recovery memoir and also kind of a midlife reboot and search for self type primer. And that book did well. And on the wake of that book coming out uh, in 2012, I started my podcast back in a time when people were not clamoring to start podcasts and it was not cool to have a podcast uh, and have just been doing it ever since and have been really consistent. And that audience has grown slowly and organically over time. And here I am still doing it. I'm still in love with it. That is an amazing story. I mean, I I, I feel like we have 2000 follow up questions yeah. from everything you just yeah. said. So Shuram and I are like clamoring yeah. for white space here. When I think about history, one of the things that's really fascinating is there are so many arcs to it, you know, highly accomplished endurance athlete at a young age, you know, and obviously, and by the way, thank you so much for just being so open about this, but then obviously struggling uh, with alcohol. And then kind of like having this moment of epiphany. Could you actually talk about that? Because one of the things which really struck me is from the outside, you know, in your 20s, you know, you are incredibly high functioning, accomplished, you're a swimmer, um, you know, and, you know, but yet you're kind of like struggling with these demons inside. And I suspect that a lot of people who might be listening to this are out there who have some variation of it where they seem highly successful, you know, or incredibly physically fit, but they may be struggling with something which may be an addiction. So could you maybe describe like what that felt like, or maybe for folks listening, what are maybe warning Mm -hmm. signs they should be looking for? Yeah, sure. I mean, in, in my case, and I always try to share from personal experience and, you know, shy away from giving any advice. All I know is what, you know, what I have experienced personally. And, you know, I've learned over the years that that, you know, the specifics of my story are my own, although there's kind of general principles that, that emerge from that that are, uh, you know, relatable for other people. And, I, you know, I would start by saying that, you know, I know for a fact that as a young person, I, I, I was a kind of very quiet, uh, insecure kid who struggled to make connections with other people and kind of became like a bookwormy sort of outsider as a young Mm -hmm. person. 
And my gravitation towards the swimming pool was, you know, not unrelated to that because that was a very comfortable place for me away from the bullying that I was experiencing in school and almost like a, a womb-like safe zone for me where I could be myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and probably, you know, there's a good argument that my first addiction was swimming. Mm -hmm. um, and I think kind of tangential to that was um, a search for external validation. You know, I grew up in a household in which uh, achievement, especially in the classroom, was mm -hmm. a huge priority. And although there wasn't a lot of uh, kind of overt pressure, it was sort of understood, like we're here to excel. And love uh, was very much calibrated in uh, in lockstep with how well I was doing, uh, you know, in the classroom or as an athlete. And I think that's still a struggle that I contend with today, you know, that, uh, you know, I, my, I, I'm only as worthy as my achievements, you know, and I think that's mm -hmm. probably something that a lot of high achieving, you know, type A founders and, <clears throat> you know, people that tune into your audience might be able to relate to. And I had a kind of um, sense of, you know, dis-ease within myself. I never felt comfortable in my own skin. I never felt comfortable in social situations. I didn't know how to talk to people, let alone, you know, talk to a girl or any of that kind of yeah. stuff. And when I discovered alcohol, it was like this magic salve that, that, you know, removed all of that insecurity and anxiety and allowed me perhaps for the very first time to feel comfortable in my own skin. And all I remember about that was thinking, wow, you know, I just want to feel this way all the time. It was as mm -hmm. if, you know, I suddenly had a rule book for life that had been missing that everyone else seemed to be clued in on. And, you know, for quite some time, alcohol worked. Like people become addicts and alcoholics, not because it's dysfunctional out of the gate. It is serving some need. It might be mm -hmm. an unhealthy outlet for, you know, kind of solving whatever internal pain or discomfort you're experiencing, but in the short term it works. And so for quite some time, I was a functional alcoholic. I mean, it did, slowly denigrate the quality of my life, uh, you know, with every succeeding month and year. And a lot of the aspirations that I held for myself and that kind of potential that I had suddenly became secondary to just chasing, you know, my next good time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't until many years later where it got really dark and desperate and lonely and, you know, kind of frankly pathetic. I destroyed all my relationships and my family didn't want anything to do with me. And I was on the precipice of getting fired. Like it was a disaster. I had a marriage that went sideways. It was, you know, there was nothing romantic or sexy or, or rock and roll about it. Um, and in the wake of getting sober, as they say in the parlance of recovery, like the road gets narrower. Mm. So yes, I had stopped using alcohol and drugs, but that, you know, innate, addictive tendency will latch on to anything to try to, um, you know, take you out of the present moment and, you know, solve whatever internal discomfort that you're having. And that can come in the form of relationships or food or gambling or any kind of, or, or your, 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 you know, your mobile device, as we all, mm -hmm. you know, are becoming increasingly familiar with, you know, anything to, uh, you know, distance yourself from whatever, you know, internal consternation you're experiencing. And, you know, over the many years that I've been sober, 
it's, 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 it's not about like, oh my God, am I going to pick up a drink? It's more about my daily emotional sobriety. Like how grounded am I? How connected am I to my behaviors and the behaviors that are kind of moving me forward toward the person I want to be or distancing me from that because I just have something I don't want to look at or I don't want to deal with. And, you know, the longer that I've been sober, the more convinced I've become that, uh, you know, addiction really lives on a gigantic spectrum. And I think most people could identify themselves somewhere along that spectrum mm-hmm. at the far polarity. You have, you know, heroin addicts and, you know, gutter drunks, et cetera. And on the other polarity, you have people that just, you know, can't stop scrolling on their phone or continue to get into the same bad relationship. And they're very high functioning, but clearly there's, you know, it, sort of an obsessive compulsive behavior pattern um, that everyone could probably you know find in their own lives that is some form of addiction that is preventing them from you know really being the most self-actualized and authentically expressed expressed person that they can that they can be Bob thank, thank you for sharing that if people haven't read it I highly recommend that they go read the book because it goes into that and you know I think in some ways your second sort of uh, come to Jesus, a uh, wake up moment when you're close to 40. Uh, you know, one of the things which strikes me about you is I we live in a world where a lot of people become very successful, very young in their 20s, and you see them becoming billionaires. And what I love about your story is you have lived quite the life and then you become famous and successful and have a bestseller and you know by the way it's not just the health or life issues you know you kind of put it all on the line but you're trying to write this book and make this podcast work you have a great story around that do you feel like that you having quote unquote made it professionally over the age of 40 somehow makes you appreciate it more handle it better than maybe if you had had a you know the the success you had you know at age 22 uh, there's absolutely no question. I was I was in no position emotionally, you know, spiritually to handle any kind of success at that at that young of an age. And mm-hmm. I think the only way that I've been able to kind of manage and, and weather the, uh, ex- the the sort of success that I'm experiencing now is because of all the experiences you know that I've had and all the setbacks. And you know, I'm 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 sort of surprised at. Um, the success that I'm experiencing now because I didn't set out to become financially successful or, you know, kind of a celebrity podcaster or anything like that. Like when I really had my reckoning about who I wanted to be in the world, I reached a place where I let go of all of those aspirations that I had kind of attached to a more traditional career trajectory mm-hmm. and made a very conscious decision that I was just going to pursue my curiosity and try to find the things that brought me joy and to return in service whatever I learned along the way um, to other people through, right. you know, through writing and through podcasting and through public speaking, et cetera. And of course, you know, I was intent on figuring out a way to do that such that I could pay my bills and take care of my family. But financial abundance, I had already let go of that even being a possibility. So in, in you know, an argument can be made that 
that all of that all of what's happening now is almost it's really tangential and and accidental because i didn't mm -hmm. I, I wasn't seeking that i was just seeking to find meaning in my own life and to you know convert that meaning into something substantive and helpful and meaningful for for other people and i've experienced success as a result of doing that and mm -hmm. i'm very proud of that and it, you know it feels great and all of that but it wasn't like something that i whiteboarded out and tried to you know figure out um, some kind of trajectory towards it's it's happened as a result of you know just continuing to uh you know try to share authentically and do it in a in a meaningful way wow that's amazing um one of my favorite quotes that I saw, uh, you know, is, but what makes Rich truly remarkable is that less than two years prior to his first Ultraman, he didn't even own a bike, let alone race one. Um, you just started like abs with absolutely no kind of skills in this whole Ultraman running business. And you get into, you know, the World Ultraman Championships, the Epic Fight Challenge. Why that? That seems a little extreme. Mm -hmm. You know, I know a lot of runners. I am one yeah. myself. But to go there to like the very pinnacle of extreme, I don't know, um, strain, uh, why go through that path and that route? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I think there's two answers to that. I mean, the first one is, you know, I'm the first one to admit that I'm drawn to extremes. I mean, mm -hmm. sort of alcoholism is an extreme or trying to be, you know, an Olympian in the swimming pool. That's an extreme, uh, you know, pursuit. And there's something about, you know, reaching beyond yourself and what you think you're capable of that makes me feel alive. And you can make the argument that there is a, you know, a light dusting of addiction and alcoholism layered into that. People often ask me like, well, isn't, you know, these pursuits that you've done in the ultra world, isn't that just you translating your, your alcoholism from one thing to the next? And I, I do think there's some truth to that. Ultimately, those pursuits have made me a better person. So there are, you know, qualitative distinctions, but, you know, I love, you know, seeing what happens if I push the envelope and really put myself on the line? And mm -hmm. the ultra endurance world is an amazing template for self-exploration, which brings me to the second point, which is I didn't get into these races. Yes, there was a little bit of like, oh, I didn't realize my potential as an athlete. Let me see you know, what I can do. That's part of it. But the bigger piece really was I, I was having this kind of existential crisis about what to do with my life. And and I think, you know, the training and the discipline that goes into preparing for those crazy races, you know, requires you to be in a state of discomfort for, you know, fantastically extended periods of time. So I would be out on my bike all day long or going on super crazy long runs and all of that time alone with an elevated heart rate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of focusing on my breath is a, is sort of an active meditation mm -hmm. in which I had the space to really grapple with my internal demons. And, you know, when you're when you're when you're in these races and you're pushing yourself beyond what you're capable of, you really meet yourself in the most honest way possible. Like you can't run from the truth of who you are. And I needed that confrontation in my own life to figure out what you know what i wanted to be who i wanted to be and what i wanted to do i knew that i needed to you know kind of transcend this traditional career paradigm but i didn't know 
how I was gonna move forward. And the only way to answer that question was to go super deep inside myself. And the ultra endurance world for me was like a spiritual odyssey. Yeah, I was gonna ask that. I could grapple with those questions. Uh, And and did spirituality, you know, I I recently, um, I listened to your episode on spirituality where you have this collection of different interviews from the past. Um, What role does spirituality play or did it play uh, as you, you know, you go into these ultramans and just like basically reinvent yourself? What role does spirituality play Mm -hmm. there? Yeah, I mean, I would say without without getting too mystical or woo woo about the whole thing, that yeah. it's all spiritual for me. You know, I remember when I was in treatment, and I talk about this in the book. Uh, you know, early in that experience, a counselor asked me, "Rich, are you a human being having a spiritual experience, or are you a spiritual being having a human experience?" <laughs> and I. I, I was like, what? I don't understand that question. Like I, I had not had any experience with um, grappling with spirituality mm-hmm. up to that point. Like I had grown up in a traditional household in which we would occasionally go to church, but religion wasn't part of my upbringing. I never connected with that at all mm-hmm. and was very much a, you know, a pragmatist and a materialist. And, um, you know, in the process of, of trying to get sober, it occurred to me that my best thinking, and I thought I was a smart guy because I got into all these fancy colleges, but my best thinking ended me up in a, men- a mental institution. And that was the truth. And I needed to really find a different way of approaching my life. And you know, the 12-step paradigm of recovery, which is the rubric under which I've gotten sober and stayed sober and am still very much a, you know, a, a member of and very active in is a spiritual program. It involves mm-hmm. a higher power of your own choosing and it's non-denominational or religious in any way, but it is a spiritual program and it's asking you to really embrace the fact that you are not the center of the universe, that there are forces at play that are beyond your control. And when you kind of surrender to that and be in more of an allowing space of, of relinquishing your self-will, which is antithetical to anybody who is a high achiever, um, that is the place in which magic can occur. And it was very difficult for me to really embody that sensibility as somebody who truly believed that everything that I had been successful in was a direct result of my self-will. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't think of myself as a particularly talented person, but I know how to work hard. And, you know, if I apply myself then I can be successful and, you know, I really ran into a brick wall with that and had to find a different way, a way of letting go, a way of kind of surrendering and being in this allowing place and understanding that, you know, you're not in control. And when you try to control things, ultimately they in the long term go awry and so mm-hmm. everything that i have kind of been successful in as a you know in the wake of of being sober i you know i don't attribute to myself but to being a vessel or a vehicle for a message and uh, you know a resonance that is you know in service to other people mm-hmm. here's a phrase that i think which matters you've spoken about a lot uh, mood follows action. What does that mean to you? Could you help explain? Yeah, sure. So I wish I'd come up with that myself. That that I, I attribute that quote to um, 
my first sponsor in in uh, in the the secret society of <laughs> alcoholic recovery, and and it it was first uttered to me when uh, I think I think it was you know I I was asked to uh, there was there was something that I didn't want to do like I didn't feel like doing it and my sponsor said mood follows action. And I was like, what does that mean? It's like, just do the thing, like get out of your own way. And the, uh, you know, the, the, the emotional state that you seek is not going to ultimately just, you know, fall upon you. It's a function of the actions that you undertake. And there's now neuroscience, neurochemistry to support this. So for example, you know, you wake up and you don't feel like going to the gym, right? And you're like, well, I'll go when I feel like it. Well, how often do you actually feel like going? Not very often, but every time you go, you feel better afterwards. So in other words, it's the action that changes the emotional state as opposed to the emotional state changing such that you will undertake the action. So it's about getting out of your own way and setting aside the chatter of the idle mind and just being prone to action first um, as opposed to getting caught up in your emotional state working mm -hmm. as a barrier um, preventing you from actually undertaking the things that you know you need to do, whether that's a simple to-do list, whether it's a fitness goal, whether it's a professional um, task that you keep delaying, uh, you know. And so, as a mantra, it's very effective to just get out of your own head and kind of prioritize action as opposed to listening to you know that that idle chatter that you know recurs in all of our brains. Wow. <laughs> uh, I, I like that uh, a lot. Okay, I want to talk about fitness. And you know, um, uh, first of all, I think you might be the most good looking person we've had on the show so far. Uh, and, uh, so, too kind. Uh, uh, I, I, that should be the title of the video. Uh, yeah. But um, what is a, you know, what is the week right now for you, you know, in the current stage of your life, you know, look like on a diet fitness. and workout perspective? Yeah, I mean, right now I keep all it's all at a very low boil. I'm not training for any crazy races at the moment and I haven't been in a highly competitive setting since 2017, I think was the last time I did a really big race. Mm -hmm. So I stay connected to it um but I'm not training to, you know, kind of up, you know, sort of uh distinguish myself in that world at the moment because I have too many other competing interests right now vying for my attention and my time and the kind of uh you know equation that i run in my mind is what is the best use of my time and energy in terms of um being as impactful in the world as i can possibly be mm -hmm. uh and sometimes training for a race especially i'm turning 56 in two weeks like i think doing something hard at my age, I think could be a really cool thing to show other people like, Hey, it's still possible at, you know, at, at, at my maturing age that you can still get out there and do some, do hard things and have fun doing it. But ultimately training for those races takes up so much time. I mean, it's like a job. And if I'm doing that, then it means I'm not able to do as many podcasts or perhaps the quality of the, the content that I'm putting out in the world might suffer. And I'm not willing to do that right now. Mm -hmm. So on a daily basis, I'm probably putting in somewhere between 10 and 15 hours a week of, of fitness related activities. And that involves strength training, 
um, swimming, cycling. I'm not running very much right now. I've got a lower back issue that I'm trying to sort out, but I just was on a bike ride this morning for two hours. And it's really about joy for me. Like I need it for my mental health as much as for my physical right. health. And right. I'm not doing it for performance reasons as much as I'm doing it because it's something that I love to do. And I make sure that I, you know, prioritize and, and carve out time to do that. And yeah. on the diet piece, um, you know, it hasn't changed that much over the years. I keep things really simple, uh, plant-based foods as close to their natural state as possible. Um, a morning smoothie with dark leafy greens, vegetables, berries, maybe some chia seeds and hemp seeds for omega-3s. That usually, um, you know, hits the spot for the first part of the day. Uh, I often do like a 16-8 fast. So sometimes I skip lunch and just eat a larger dinner. If I do eat lunch, I keep it pretty light, like a salad or some soup, maybe uh, a green juice or something like that. And Dinner time is uh, where I really get the calories in. So lots of Mexican food, lots of beans and lentils, which are high in protein uh, and just, you know, tons of fruits and vegetables pretty much. I mean, it's nothing special. I think people conflate plant-based eating as being something that's expensive and very time consuming. But, you know, I eat popper food and I keep it really simple, like rice and beans with hot sauce and guacamole is I'm good to go. And I eat lots of food. Like I don't eat small portions. I, you know, put down the calories pretty good and it's been serving me now. I've been plant-based for 15 years and I'm still able to get out and, you know, push myself physically and put on lean muscle mass and all of that. So I haven't had any problems with it. And I just, I love the lifestyle. And I love the fact that not only is it good for your body, uh, it's, it's a way of sidestepping a lot of these lifestyle ailments that are unnecessarily debilitating millions of people every year, but it's also, yeah. um, uh, more environmentally sustainable to eat lower on the food chain. And, uh, obviously it's, uh, more compassionate to opt out of the ills of animal agriculture. Yeah. I mean, we grew up in, um, India vegetarians. So for us, um, it wasn't hard to like continue to be a vegetarian here, right? Like, you know, we have the same, mm. similar to you, lots of veggies, lots of Indian food, especially like really focuses on, um, fresh veggies and fruits. And that's kind of like a lot of, and it's like legumes, like lentils and rice and beans. And that's kind of it. Um, I, I think vegan is a little bit extreme because Indian uh, cooking involves a lot of, um, you know, paneer, like cheese varieties and things sure. like that. Um, uh, I, you know, I wanted to ask you, why did you go into plant-based food? But I think you just answered that you just came, you know, you have this uh, whole cheese line, the vegan cheese line. Um, mm -hmm. we tried it. it was great. It, you know, it was fantastic. I couldn't tell the difference. Um, why, why getting into, you know, nut based cheese? Is it the, an extension of the plant-based diet, but with like, you know, now you can have cheese that's plant-based kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, first of all, let me just be clear. That's my wife, Julie Pyatt's company. Um, okay. So it's her genius and her brainchild. I'm here to support it, but That's she's awesome. the founder. She's the CEO. This is her thing. And she's really built something really remarkable and beautiful. And it, it's an organic outgrowth of this lifestyle that we have per been pursuing as a family for, for many years. And, okay. um, you know, when I was training and, and racing really intensely, 
she really showed up for me to try to figure out how to feed me and, and, and nourish me in the best possible way. And she's an artist and very creative. And she came up with all these amazing recipes for plant-based eating that would, uh, you know, really hit the spot for me and as a, as a way of supporting me towards these goals. And those recipes ended up um, in two cookbooks that we wrote together that are really her recipes, the Plant Power mm -hmm. Way and the Plant Power Way Italia. But over the course of many years, the refrain I, I'm often, a subscriber, by the way, for the website, Meal Planner. I just <laughs> subscribed. It's great. Oh, you did? Good, good, yeah. good, good. Yeah, I'm really proud of that service that, that we offer. Um, but yeah, so, so uh, uh, you know, she, uh, the refrain, I lost my train of thought, but I, I think what I was trying to say was that you often hear like, oh, I would go plant-based, but like, I'm, I love cheese too much. Like cheese is the one thing that people love. And I understand that. Like for me, um, kicking dairy was much harder than, than removing, uh, meat from my plate. Um, there's something about cheese that's very alluring and dairy finds its way into so many of the foods that we eat. Mm -hmm. And so Julie was like, I'm going to figure this out. Like I'm going to try to create a plant-based version of cheese that, uh, that can like obviate that argument. And she spent eight years, like in the kitchen lab, like testing and trying new things and has really emerged from that exploratory experience with a remarkable series of products that she now offers under the, the brand name Shrimu, S-R-I-M-U, yeah. yeah. uh, these plant-based cheeses that, you know, I, I would say that most, if not, I would say 98% of the plant-based cheeses that, that you would find in the grocery stores are really not good and they're they not all good. kind of the same. I have to say, I was yeah, they're not good. When I got the package, <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh man, one more yeah. like cashew nut right. thing. I don't know. Uh -huh. I think I first tried the truffle based one. It was fantastic. It was great. I gave it to my kid. Yeah. She loves cheese and she loved it too. And she asked for more, which, you know, yeah. it tells you everything. We have never discussed she cheese on the show before. This, I is, know, a, this is a first. It is really, is really first. good. <laughs> um, All right. Richard, yeah. so if nothing else. <laughs> you know, you know, I suspect the typical a lot of the listeners that we have are people like me who sit in front of a laptop or a screen most of the week. Um, yeah, and you know, don't really definitely don't get the physical activity uh, or the diet that they should be. And I sometimes I think when you know people like me or them look at folks like you, Huberman, Peter Atia, David Goggins, etc. You folks are kind of intimidating, to be honest, right? Because you're like, oh my goodness, like, they are so far ahead and seem so amazingly accomplished and driven in ways that regular mortals and civilians, you know, can't be. Um, and and one of the it's why I think your story is fascinating. But for a regular person in say technology world or uh, you know corporate America or anywhere else, you know, who wants to make a change, what would be your here's your get started you know, advice? Sure. I mean, first of all, you know, I live, you know, in the world and I'm super busy and we have four kids. I'm hardly perfect at any of these things. And I understand you, you, you know, when you think of Peter Atia or Andrew Huberman, like they're there, they have a level of like focus and, and, uh, extreme diligence when it comes to this, that, that I aspire to, but I actually am not achieving in my own life. So I relate to the question myself. Uh, I'm just trying every day, like everybody else. But I think 
some of the things that have served me well is, um, you know, letting go of this perfectionist ideal, like, oh, here's my morning routine. And every day I'm going to, you know, get up at four o'clock in the morning and do deadlifts and get in the cold plunge and do my journaling and do my meditate. It's like, it is very intimidating. You're like, well, that's a three hour morning routine. Like, it's I know. how do they do that? I'm like, I just want to know, you know how so you manage your time. <laughs> I don't, e I don't either. Like I do the best that I can, but you know, I definitely fall short from that kind of idealized paradigm. I think the, the, the way to go about it is to, um, make small changes and try to master them over time and don't try to overwhelm yourself with trying to completely transform your life overnight. Uh, so for example, on the dairy piece, like, you know what, I'm just, I'm used to putting whole milk in my coffee every morning. You know, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna switch up to almond milk or oat milk or coconut milk or whatever it is. I'm going to do that for two weeks and that's all I'm going to worry about. Uh, and then after a couple of weeks, that becomes like a normal behavior and you don't really think about it anymore. You've kind of inured yourself to it. And then you can look at something else like, oh, maybe now I'll um, try to eat a little bit less of this or I'll try this new thing. And I think when you approach it from a perspective of curiosity and treat it like kind of a fun adventure experience as opposed to. Uh, a martyr-like, uh, you know, um, experience of, of suffering, yeah. <laughs> you're in a better position to, to progress because it's not about short-term gains. If you're trying to change your lifestyle, it has to be sustainable. So mm -hmm. I think baby steps are super important. And when you slip up and don't do it perfectly, uh, to avoid beating yourself up because then you've just made a second mistake. Mm -hmm. Be gentle on yourself, I guess is what I would say. And, you know, try to think about the long term. Like, how do you want to be feeling and eating five years from now, 10 years from now? And making those small changes and trying to master the consistency behind that is much more important than making some sweeping change that only lasts, you know, a couple months before you flame out. And I think the philosophy behind that is understanding and appreciating that every big change is really about tiny little things that you do every single day, right? Mm -hmm. And breaking these things down into really digestible nuggets uh, is the recipe uh, for, su for success that, that I've continued to pursue uh, and, seems, and seems to work well. Mm -hmm. you know, that's amazing it's like also you know that's like steph curry trying to teach us how to do a three-point shot you know it sounds so simple right. uh but it's like you it's, just pick up the ball and you yeah, throw yeah, it really get, high get it in the net um, <laughs> um but like if you like let's say you want to get into running and you've never run before like just go out and walk around the block like you don't don't like you know try to make it something that is doable in your mm -hmm. life. And then you kind of slowly build on those things. And I think people are very impatient. You know, they want results yeah. overnight. And if you think of things in like thousand day, you know, chunks as opposed to three month chunks um, and, and, and really kind of progress much more patiently and gradually than we're, we're kind of hardwired to do, um, that, that is, you know, I think a secret weapon. I want to talk to you about your podcast because, you know, in some ways you're a the prototype for the creators and the podcasters you've seen today. And you obviously have one of the most successful ones out there. You've been doing uh, it for 10 years. 10 years plus. Yeah. Um, so, and I want to ask you about some of your guests, but you've done hundreds, if not thousands of episodes. What makes for a good guest and conversation and what makes for a bad one? 
Uh, well, let's see. There's a lot packed into that in terms of like who makes who makes for a good guest. Uh, I think. Um, listen, you know, not everybody is used to, uh, you know, having kind of long form conversations while they're being recorded. And some people just aren't wired for that, in which case it's the responsibility of the host to try to bring out the best in that person. And, you know, they're not all going to go great. I've done 710. They're not all, you know, five stars. Uh, but I think the important thing from a host perspective is, First, being very mindful of the people that you're inviting on, like who, you know, and, and for me, I've learned over time that uh, I have to be naturally, innately curious about that person or it's not going to be a good conversation. Like I've been mm -hmm. in situations where a lot of people say, oh, you got to have this person. They're amazing. They're amazing. But I'm not feeling it. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll conduct that conversation and it's flat. And that's not because the guest isn't amazing. I'm just not the right person to have that conversation with them. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about learning to trust your own instincts about the kind of people that you want to engage with is super important. And preparation, secondly, is huge. I think a lot of podcast guests don't take preparation seriously enough and I take it very seriously. So being well armed so that you can handle anything that comes at you from that person is key. Uh, and actually, then third, uh, can, can, can I just on that point, I actually want to ask you because yeah. it seems like there are two schools of thought when it comes to podcast preparation, right? There are folks, for example, Howard Stern, who spent research teams and who know every little thing there is to know about the guest. And then there are others who are like, I want to be surprised. Uh, Larry King, for example, was famous for, I want to be surprised. I don't want to know much about the guest because mm -hmm. um, there's sometimes a feeling that if you're prepared, you already know where the conversation is going to go. And that can maybe kill a little spontaneity. And how do you think about that? Because we we discuss this a lot about how much should we prepare? Are we too overprepared on some guest? And we think about this a lot. Yeah, that's actually a great insight and a very good point. And I've thought a lot about this as well. Um, True. Larry King, famous for never preparing. Uh, then you have, you know, people like Howard Stern on the other side of the spectrum. I probably fall on the overprepared side of it. And that's just me. I think that it depends on it, it's about understanding who you are. You know, mm -hmm. I think some people are very good at being quick on their feet. And that surprise element, I think, is, uh, you know, is 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 works really well for that type of individual. I'm just not well suited for that. But I do think there is something to be said for being overprepared. So when I say prepared, I always kind of hold back maybe 15 to 20 percent uh, so that I can make room for that surprise, because I'm sure you've had that experience where you're talking to somebody and you actually know every story and you kind of, you know, you you know exactly where they're going to go with everything that you say to them. And that makes for that can make for a flatter experience. So I think there is uh, something to be said for leaving a little bit, um, you know, on the table so that it can feel a little bit more organic and 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 dynamic. It's so true. I mean, it's funny because we're actually chatting about this when we were preparing to have you on the show because we are such huge fans. We've read your books. We know so much. I have listened to you for so long, and we're like, okay, there's a part of it which is like our audience needs to hear these stories, and which is so amazing. But then we need to also figure out, okay, what are things that we haven't heard and just this particular topic to get very meta. And uh, it's interesting. Um, okay. And so I want to maybe go over some of your recent and maybe really popular guests, which are just really super fascinating. And maybe 
one of the most interesting episodes I think you've done for me recently was you had uh, Mike Fremont on. And for folks who haven't watched the episode, we'll drop a link in. And Mike is over 100 years old. And, you know, he holds all kinds of records, holds all him. kinds of records, can do things which people, a lot of people half his age can't do. And I am curious because I was so struck and moved by the episode. And I know lots of others where, what did you learn from Mike being in the room, getting to observe him? Uh, you know, how was that experience for you? I mean, that was a really remarkable experience and, and, and such an honor and a treat for, for so many reasons. I mean, that came about because another guest of mine, uh, Harvey Lewis, who's a elite ultra marathoner is buddies with Mike and was like, you got to talk to Mike. He's amazing. And it kind of came about through, through that. Um, and I think it's really important to respect our elders. And I don't think our culture does a very good job of that. And here's a guy who, you know, has lived such a robust, long life and is doing such extraordinary things at his age and yet is doing it in complete anonymity. Like most, you know, the vast majority of people have no idea that this guy even exists. And yet he's got incredible stories and wisdom. And I think if I had to take one powerful lesson away from that, it's that um, longevity is is innately tied to staying connected with the things that that bring you joy. Uh, friendship and community, I think, has uh, really uh, maintained his vitality in an important way. And his commitment to service, like he is animated by uh, being uh, a climate warrior, like that's his whole thing. Like he loves talking about um, you know, climate change issues and, and advocating for, you know, green solutions to things. And he loves sort of giving back to other people what he's learned along the course of his journey. Like service mm -hmm. is just core to what keeps that guy going and gets him up out of bed in the morning. And I think that's really important and powerful. And it's, I think, you know, as a theme to my podcast, like I have so many different types of people on, but the heart of my show, if I had to distinguish it from other ones, is you know finding people like Mike who are doing extraordinary things, but doing them relatively anonymously and getting the opportunity to introduce such a magical creature to a large audience is really, you know, uh, something that I, I, you know, I just I love. And what's cool about Mike is that that podcast was super popular and um, a lot of other media outlets mm -hmm. like picked up on it. And as that. a result, this past week, he was in People magazine. And then last night he was on NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Like he's <laughs> now like a national media sensation. And I have so much. I'm so proud of that. Like, I think it's so yeah. cool. Yeah, Mike, you need to send uh, Rich an agent's commission. But uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Rich, is it sometimes maybe fun for you to maybe discover someone, not that somebody like Mike needs to be discovered, but as opposed to maybe having a celebrity and everyone knows and they're amazing as opposed to somebody like Mike where you're like, nobody had probably, you gave him the platform and now, you know, he's discovering stardom at the young age of like 100 something. Yeah, I mean, it's, look, it's fun to interview fancy celebrity people. I won't lie. Like I, I definitely, you know, have pinch me moments when I get to sit down with someone like Edward Norton and ask him a bunch of questions. 
Um, but I think in terms of personal meaning, like the Mike Fremont type episodes are much more personally meaningful. They're more personally meaningful to the guest and they are to me as well. And I think mm -hmm. another example of that would be um, this guy, John McAvoy. I just did my second episode with him. Um, I did an episode with him four years ago. And although he had some notoriety in the UK, he was somebody who was completely unknown in the United States, but has this unbelievable story of transformation going from serving a double life sentence after uh, a, a career as, a, yeah. as, as an armed robber and growing up in this notorious South London crime family and, uh, you know, transforming in prison into this athlete who broke world and British uh, indoor rowing records and then emerging, getting paroled and emerging into the world and becoming a professional athlete and an advocate for prison reform. Like it's the most compelling cinematic story of transformation you can possibly imagine. And to get to um, sort of amplify a story like that and share it with people, I think is a beautiful thing. And it gives people hope because that's a guy who was in a situation where everything did seem hopeless and he was still able to um, find a way to, you know, hold on to uh, a higher version of himself and over time, you know, was able to manifest that. So no matter how far, you know, you have departed from that, you know, higher self within uh, the fact that somebody in that circumstance could still turn things around, I think is a, is a ray of hope for the many people out there who suffer, you know, on some level, we're all, you know, struggling to be happier and find more meaning in our lives. And I think it's messages like that, 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 that really, you know, strike a chord with, with, with my audience. Um, on maybe the more celebrity front, you know, somebody you had on who's, you know, built an audience himself, Andrew Huberman, what makes Andrew and his content good? Because I know you have a, like a take on this. Yeah, he's such an interesting uh, individual. I mean, I think it's not a surprise that he's become so successful with his podcast. And I think it's it's a function of a couple things. I mean, first of all, he knows what he's talking about. He's the real deal when it comes to neuroscience. So he's not pretending to know things that he doesn't know. Like he's steeped in the science. He has an absolute love and passion for the things that he talks about. So there's an authenticity, I think, there that's really important. Um, and I, But I think the real distinguishing factor with Andrew is that not only does he have the knowledge base, he has an extraordinary facility for communicating extremely complex ideas in a way that is digestible to his audience, but is not pandering. Like he's never talking down to the audience, but he knows how to calibrate it such that he's challenging them just a little bit outside of their reach, but not too much. Uh, and I think people love that. Like they love feeling like they're being challenged, they're being introduced to new ideas. And I think the, the, the other point um, that makes him so resonant is the fact that everything that he does is um, oriented around practical tools to improve your life. So it's not mm -hmm. just an academic exercise. He's like, I studied all this stuff and I've extracted from the literature and the deep dive that I did to tell you these various things that you can apply into your life that will make your life better. So everything is oriented around trying to serve the audience in that way. Uh, and his you know, precision of language and 
the manner in which he's able to articulate his ideas, I think is a true talent. Wow, that's great. Um, another person who you had interviewed a while ago uh, is Robin Arzon. And uh, Robin, you know, I got to know her through like riding the Peloton bike and I would see her classes and uh, just got really interested in it because her classes were hard. You know, she would do these like hit classes and things like that. And I would just like get like really hooked onto it. Uh, what, you know, you interviewed her and clearly, you know, you, you know her, uh, what makes her good? Uh, Robin is somebody I've known for a very long time. I knew yeah. her, uh, before she became this big mainstream celebrity who's like training Ashton Kutcher and yes. Kim Kardashian for the marathon. <laughs> it's like unbelievable. Like she's on good morning America and the today show, like, cause she's a legit like mainstream celebrity. <laughs> and I'm so proud of her and happy for her because she deserves it. Like she's really smart. She's also an extremely effective communicator. And she has this natural inclination for inspiring other people, like her high energy um, and very specific uh, kind of way that she, uh, you know, champions everybody who's in her class and inspires them to push themselves a little bit harder, I think is just a real cool thing. And it's, it's something that's not like, it's uniquely her, like her use of language is very specific also, mm -hmm. but it's very Robin, like mm -hmm. the, her, her idioms and the way that she kind of, you know, comes up with these mantras, um, are so uniquely her. And I think there's something really special about that. Like, I don't know how she gets up and teaches those classes every single day and has such high energy. Like I'm Incredible. a, you know, I'm an introvert, right? Like she is a natural extrovert and she's doing exactly, you know, what she's supposed to be doing in the world. And, you know, she's cool. Like awesome. real infectious, beautiful energy about her that makes you believe in yourself. Like it's all oh, yeah. about oh, yes. self-empowerment. And by the way, I highly recommend people watch or listen to some of the older podcasts here with Robin, because that's before Robin becomes Robin on Peloton. She's, I think still a lawyer at the time and yeah. it's kind of amazing to kind of see her journey from there yeah and yeah. what kind of and also yeah. you kind of see like oh this person is exactly the same right like they're exactly they're really the same authentic. person yeah. and you, this person's probably going to blow up when they absolutely did um, yeah, yeah, for, for me sure. i think uh the days when i have really hard runs like i'm really not motivated that's when i open up the peloton app and i have like a robin instructed run because you know she'll like bring in some music which i haven't heard before it's like high energy high tempo it's just kind of walking me through the run. Uh, most times, you know, when I usually run, I just like, I don't like listening to music. It's usually a book or I just run in silence. Running is almost meditative for me. But the days when it's hard, um, it's Robin who's in my ear trying to tell me how to run. So I really appreciate right. her for like the energy that she brings in. Um, and telling okay. you to, to, to polish your crown. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like or it. pay the rent or it's one of those. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Last question. And this is kind of a deep one, which we try to ask every one of our guests. Um, you had impact on millions of people's lives. You know, you've been tremendously successful. Let's fast forward several decades into the future of, you know, maybe like over like 70, 80 years. Uh, and, uh, and you're looking back, what would you want your legacy to be what would make you go um it obviously is kind of a huge personal component to it what make you like okay you know i did what i set out to do or i'm extremely proud of everything i've accomplished mm. yeah it's a great question i mean i i feel and this is the truth like i feel so fulfilled 
in what I'm doing now. And I'm so grateful to be in the position that I'm in, um, to have these conversations like every day. Like, I just, I can't believe like, this is my job, uh, to engage amazing people and share their wisdom with a large audience. Like, it's such a cool thing. Like, it's just, it's so gratifying in so many ways. So if it all ended right now, and this is all that it ever will be for me, like it's a, it's a life well lived. Like, I feel like I've already, you know, created the legacy that I want. Um, and, and, uh, it doesn't need to be any bigger or any more amazing than it already is. And I'm very conscious that this is the good time. Like, I don't know how long this will go on. Uh, but right now, like everything is really fantastic. And I try to, you know, live in that awareness every single day, but assuming I will live for decades longer and will have the opportunity to look back on, on, on my life. Um, you know, I hope that I'm able to, uh, continue doing what I'm doing. And obviously everybody wants growth and they want to impact more people. But for me, it's really mostly about like, how do I better serve the people who are already taking time out of their busy day to tune into the content that I'm creating and how can I, you know, help to improve lives in the most substantive and, and material way possible. And I feel like I'm endeavoring to do that now and hopefully I will find new and, and, you know, kind of more impactful ways to do that. And beyond that, you know, I hope that I have, uh, you know, an amazing relationship with my children. Like that's super important to me. How do I stay connected to them in the most intimate way throughout the course of their lives. That's a huge priority to me. And, uh, and my friendships as well. You know, the people like Mike Fremont that I look up to have done an amazing job of staying connected to friends and cultivating community. And I think as we age and we get busy and we have families, particularly for men, we lose touch with our with our with our friendships like people that we used to spend tons of time with now we're too busy to make time for them and you know i'm trying to make my friendships a greater priority because i don't want to be 75 or 80 years old and only have one friend at best i want to be surrounded by loved ones i want to have amazing relationships with my children and hopefully their children um, and, and regard my life, look, looking back in the rear view mirror as somebody who, you know, tried to make the world a little bit of a better place. Wow. Um, thank you for that. Uh, when I first met you, uh, you know, I came home and I told Arthi like, Rich might be the most self-actualized person I've met in quite a while. <laughs> and I think that came out, uh, right there, but, uh, no, Rich, seriously, I, I think, you know, the work you do is tremendous and hopefully you get a chance to do it for decades and decades longer. Hopefully, you know, um, you're inspiring people uh, with... Uh, I, I really appreciate through the podcast and through other means, through your website, through the books, uh, through the meal planner, how much you tend to give back uh, and how much you're like helping other people look at their potential and help them grow. I think it's really incredible what you're doing and what you've already done so far. Yeah. Um, th thank you so, oh, so much for doing you. this. Hopefully do this for decades longer in the metaverse. Uh, you know, uh, or in some future technology thingamajig you can't even think of now. But Rich, you're an amazing person. Thank you so, so much. And this is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you guys. And I, I, I can't, I look forward to finally meeting you guys in person 
and yeah. we should uh, uh, though i feel like uh, i don't know I mean, we have to do a, a 60 day 90 yeah, day yeah. program i need to fix my diet no 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 it seems like very unfun person to eat a meal with right you go meet him and he's like you That'll know it'll be a berry smoothie yeah like no indian food like i don't know like yeah we might need to work on that <laughs> it's all fine do don't worry about it all right <laughs> yeah, you guys thank you cheers